Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And today we have super great guests. They've been on the show before, but I think this might be the apex of their powers in, in Hollywood right now. They're, they're on a heater and I, we're, we're very lucky to have them in house. Uh, you know them from, Hey, stop stabbing me, uh, Sonic one and two and violent night, a wonderful Woo! action movie that is out right now that you guys should all go see. Um, the first guy is, is I bet him doing open mics. And now he's a big-time screenwriter, and it makes me think that I should throw comedy into the fucking sun. Give it up for my man, <laughs> Pat Casey. Hey, Ed. Good to be here. Uh, and you, you know his partner from uh, – I have been on multiple episodes of his podcast, Best Movies Never Made. I've done multiple multi-part <laughs> episodes of that <laughs> podcast. So uh, he is a wonderful friend of the show, and uh, Pat Casey's screenwriting partner. Give it up for Josh Miller. Hey, hey. Also Rah. good to be here. <laughs> and uh, I just give him the crusty the clown. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> the uh, Simpsons are always welcome here. Um, now, uh, what we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to talk about myriad subjects from Christmas movies to action movies to the greatest action screenplays. We're going to talk about all that because we have guys who know about all that. And I'd like to start out the co- the conversation with: Are there besides your movie? Other Christmas action movies that you'd like to mention that you like that you guys would like to uh, mention as influences on you guys or ones that you think are part of the greatest screen action screenplays. I mean, the obvious is Die Hard as one of the great action movies of all time and a direct inspiration for Violent Night seems almost a boringly obvious response, but the most appropriate but then the whole Shane Black kind of all falls into the Christmas action genre to varying degrees. Like Long Kiss Goodnight, extremely Christmassy. Mm-hmm. Lethal Weapon is a Christmas movie, but not very heavy on the Christmas stuff. Yeah, most people the- forget the Christmas <laughs> part of that. I can't even, I feel like I recently rewatched The Last Boy Scout and I can't even remember what the Christmas stuff in that movie is. Uh, I think it's just in late like November, December, because they're playing football and it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess I guess it's it's uh, one of those months. I think you're forgetting <laughs> about the most important action movie uh, for that was Christmas of all time, and that's Jingle All the Way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Shot in our hometown, baby. Yeah, we yeah, went down Minnesota. to the Mall of America while they were shooting that movie to gawk at it, and we saw oh, really? Arnold and his uh, stunt double hanging out. It was oh, pretty exciting. Right. That actually is really fucking rad. <laughs> the sequence where he's chasing the Super Bowl around the giant ball pit or whatever. Oh my god, that's great. Uh, yeah. And I also I also want to bring up um, one um honorable mention for greatest action movie set during Christmas time and that is whatever that shit is with the kid who shot his eye out. That's I love that. The, uh, Christmas, story. Christmas story. <laughs> Christmas yeah. story. Dude, I fucking love that movie. It's action packed. He shoots he shoots a bunch of criminals with a gun to defend his home uh in a fantasy sequence, but he does it nonetheless. Uh there is some gun action at the end. I, I just I think that's my favorite Christmas movie of all time. And I know it might have been indoctrinated by it showing up on PBS ever since it was I was on a fucking TV embryo. all the time. Yeah. Or What's on funny TV. About, I, I, funny about did they that run that movie. on PBS? I don't. I meant, I meant TBS, TBS, but I really yeah. meant TNT. <laughs> yeah, any of those Ted Turner owned stations. What about Christmas Story? I was thinking about this recently because I keep seeing people tweeting that the new uh, sequels actually like not bad, despite the fact that the trailer makes it look pretty terrible. Yeah, um, which is good because I love the original, so it'd be fun if the new one was good. Um, but I was thinking back when I was a kid. For some reason, that movie like. I guess because it was set in the past to really fooled my little kid brain. In my mind, though, that that movie was really old. Yeah, yeah. it came out in 83, but it was yeah, set in like it was like two something. years before the Goonies, which in my mind was a contemporary movie. I mean, it's the same. I feel like Happy Days felt like it was really old, too, even though it was <laughs> yeah. a recent show because it took place in the 50s and I was too dumb to comprehend the difference, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Ron Howard's yeah. 50s show is Andy Griffith. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Isn't this like how it always happens, though? Like, uh, James Gunn loves everything from the fucking 80s. Well, as, yeah. far, as, as far as what you guys um, like in action cinema, because, again, 
I, it's going to be a continuous plug for Violent Night because we were able to see a screening of it uh, with you guys actually in the in the audience, which was awesome. And uh, uh, you got to hear Ron laugh at jokes that you wrote months and months <laughs> ago. You know what I mean? And I just I I, I can only uh, hope to one day experience that. But uh, what was it like to come up with a Christmas movie and come up with an action movie and have to do both in equal measure? Because like as a script writing problem, I wouldn't give that to my worst enemy. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I don't want to say it was easy, but the idea was so clear in our heads from the get go that like to us, it seemed like sort of a natural thing to smoosh together um, to just do a diehard, as Rick and Morty would say, um, but really lean into the Christmassiness. Like the difficulty, I guess, is worrying that somewhere along the line, you know, someone would like chicken out on how Christmassy or how actiony uh, the movie was and lean one way or the other. But I, don't know, I mean, what do you think, Pat? I, I feel like that element of it was nothing we ever tripped up on. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of been a problem throughout our careers sometimes of running into the roadblock of people being like, this can't be two things. It can't be funny and heartfelt, but like, that's kind of our whole deal. So it's like, we, we really believe in it. <laughs> but I mean, for this movie, yeah, we wrote it under great time constraints right at the beginning of COVID. But like we had kind of everything we needed going into it. Like we knew it was going to be Die Hard. Anytime we got confused about the action part of it, we would go back and just consult yeah, what, Die Hard, what would Die, die Hard, hard 2. Yeah, or Die Hard 2. Do. And the other Die Hard ripoffs, you know, Under Siege and uh, Sudden Death, the Jean-Claude Van Damme hockey arena movie. You know, are you speaking Ron's language? <laughs> yeah, you are. That was like, I realized I had such bad taste. I undersee every Steven Seagal, every Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. I, I showed up opening night for those <laughs> with my buddy Lance. Just like, this is, we're watching this. We're so pumped. It's a well, hard target. The, I got to tell you. the 90s were all about, really. Yeah. And then the Christmas part of it, it is funny because it's like we I feel like we forgot to do any Christmas research. This was just based on our childhood memories. Like I only went back and watched Miracle on 34th Street after this movie was done. And I was like, oh, this whole movie was about how the little girl doesn't believe in Santa. And like I was remembering it completely wrong. <laughs> Uh, but like we knew from the get go, yeah, that we were going to have this walkie talkie relationship between Santa and Trudy and that that kind of thing just sort of carried us through. Like all the basic ideas were there. It was just like, how do we line these up? And then uh, kind of just fell into well, place. Yeah, we, in a way, we didn't need to do any research for a Christmas movie because we were trying to make it so thoroughly conventional that it it is kind of that feeling of like if it isn't something that was ingrained in the back of our brain since childhood uh it, it wasn't quite the right vibe and sometimes doing sense. research like if we would have watched those christmas movies you know like we only recently realized that there's a part in the santa claus where he like lists off all his different names in different languages and if we'd watched that we might have been like oh we can't do that but we didn't watch it so we just did it anyway it wasn't yeah. a ripoff it was just a coincidence <laughs> well there was a couple of things i really enjoyed in there one i love the terrible family dynamic <laughs> but i also love that the one kid is just so happy to see her grandma so happy to be at christmas I remember feelings like that because my family was a nightmare. <laughs> Every holiday was like somebody broke a table in half. Someone was mad because we <laughs> didn't go easy on the kids and trivial pursuit. You know, there was always something. <laughs> no wonder you like Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. And people <laughs> karate chopping tables in half. Yeah, over yeah, Ron's I mean, house. It was like, but also there was this like really warm feeling about Christmas and about the family dynamic at the same time. And I feel like you guys totally pulled that off with the little girl just loving Christmas as much as she loved it and totally believing and just being so happy to see both of her parents. You know, just the whole thing was just like a great dynamic that I think m improved the movie, like even like made, moved the movie up a notch in my book. So <laughs> and, the, and the and the Mark Wahlberg, Wahlberg of it all. Uh, <laughs> that was yeah we're definitely not going to spoil the movie though but yeah. i will say that um yeah the the other thing i appreciated about it is uh when you look at the diehard of it there are so many movies that like are built on the diehard engine 
right? And I kind of want to look at those. What do you think are some of the best ones of those? Because I think that informs some of the choices mm-hmm. you guys made in this one. Because obviously, you can just paint it by numbers and have it look just like Die Hard, and people will see that it's an inferior copy and throw it into the sun. <laughs> that is not what anybody's going to do with this movie at all, because it has a lot more nuance. And I'll throw out my favorite one, um, Under Siege, and arguably Under Siege 2. Are two of the best. (laughs) Me too. Two of the best fucking. I'm trapped in here. No, motherfucker. Y'all terrorists are trapped in here with me. And you're about to get fucked up. And when people pick up the radio and go, wait a minute, you ran into Casey Ryback? (laughs) I'm telling you, that that gives me the feels right now, 25 years later. You know what I'm saying? So, what are some of the best ones to you guys? It it is funny, the Under Sieges. Yeah, those, because those are diehards, but they're also sort of John Wicks, the the Derek Kolstad sort of formula of like some bad guys fuck with some guy they think is just some guy. And then they learn, like, oh no, this is the world's biggest badass and you fucked with the wrong dude. Um, yeah, that's my favorite shit of all time, dude. I, I shit you not. I, when the guy takes off his jacket and he's swollen, he's got a thousand scars from a thousand wars. <laughs> Sign me up for that reveal every fucking time. Yeah, I mean, Cliffhanger is another, I feel. Ooh, die hard yeah, on a mountain. mountain. Uh, I mean, it's funny because it's. I feel like there's there's the direct die hard on a, the cliffhangers, the sudden deaths. Yeah, and where there's like, like a, a hostage situation. Like Air Force One, Passenger 57. I almost feel like there's a whole airplane subset <laughs> of the subgenre. I mean, another one that's a little different is the like the raid slash dread subgenre, which is like a oh. spinoff of Die Hard because they're both in a building. But in that case, it's not a hostage situation. It's our heroes being hunted by everyone in this giant building. And I, I love them both, especially, I mean, they're almost the same movie, uh, <laughs> but I really I mean, love dread because of like dreads character arc in that movie about, you know, having t- to learn that sometimes you got to bend the rules ever so slightly, but that's such a big character change for him because he's such a rigid fascist dude at the top of that movie. It's great. Another one I feel like has been, essentially forgotten by time, except for a very specific age group of people who saw it when they were like 12 is toy soldiers with Sean oh, yeah. Aston. Oh, <laughs> fuck. Yeah. yeah. That is die yeah. hard in a prep school, I guess is. <laughs> and in that case, it was like our kids didn't have any special skills to use to win. They just had to be plucky, plucky teens. Sean Aston's special skill was just <laughs> how, you know, that he was, he was that like, kid at the school archetype the kid who can like figure out anything and always is bending the rules and knows all the ways to escape from the school to go get up to innocent no goodery you know? yeah his power is that yeah. he's a, a naughty kid dude yeah. i'm telling you the next great action pitch uh and uh if you, if you guys use this give me 14 cents and a special thanks like like if i created a great character for marvel um but but i think breakfast club terrorists Boom! You got it. You got it. you got you got toy soldiers again. But you like because like Bender knows how to break out of the library and go get his doobage for the locker, and he knows the long way around to where the principal can't get him. Applying knowledge like that to a terrorist situation, like, I know this school like the back of my hand. I've been here for six years. You know, it's just some <laughs> some and underhand. And the yeah, nerd so- has been been reading the anarchist cookbook, so he can make Molotov <laughs> yeah, cocktails. Exactly. Yeah. Know. And the yeah. fucking the, the freak, the freak has like a shiv that she got from her uncle <laughs> that comes in handy. That's you know too good mean? to give away on your pod, Ed. You should respect this, dude. Yeah, cut this out. What are you doing, Ed? <laughs> oh, God. This is the first part of the buzz for my fucking action movie uh, m- uh, machine. But I will, I will say, just to backtrack just a slight bit. I want to talk a tiny bit more about Cliffhanger because I don't, I've talked about this a tiny bit before on other things, but like Cliffhanger and to a way lesser degree, Daylight represent this very interesting portion of Sylvester Sloan's career where he was like, I don't want to kill anybody, man. And I don't want to use guns and stuff. I just want to be a guy. Can I just be a guy? And he tried so hard to just be a guy with all those fabulous muscles and his weird speech impediment, his doughy face. He tried so hard to be a regular person. And Cliffhanger, he comes the closest. 
You know, he has he has he's that tragedy in the beginning. He's a regular person because it's still always about how he's the world's mightiest badass. He just isn't well, using guns, you know? Well, and this one, he's not mighty. He's the best. And that's a, obviously a, a, a trope in these movies. He's the best mountain climber. So how does a the best mountain climber defeat a bunch of guys with guns and combat experience? And, like, even Leon fucks his ass up in a physical fight in there, you know, <laughs> which I love. I, he allowed he, he allowed skinny-ass Leon from, you know, uh, all these uh, high five heartbeats to beat his fucking ass for, like, two minutes in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I, Steven Seagal would never do that. So I just wanted to mention Cliff. Yeah, Steven Seagal yeah. would never would never allow himself <laughs> to lose a fight at any point in any of his movies. Uh, never. Yeah. It is it these like action it. hero egos are hilarious. The way the way different guys manage it, like Tom Cruise, he likes getting beat up in his movies. In yeah. the Mission mm-hmm. Impossible ones, he like he gets it, and that's why he's he still spent his on whole top, career maybe. pretending <laughs> to not be short. Except for if he's going to fight a guy, then we can have the scene where the guy yeah. just keeps rising up and is like eight inches taller than him. He'll allow himself to, to be him. short if the other guy is like. Six nine. <laughs> he won't allow himself to be short if he's fighting a guy who's five eleven. You know, yeah. Or he's about to kiss a girl who's five eleven. I guess that's the other one. <laughs> that's where you really got to put him on the blocks. Uh, There's okay. a reason Tom Cruise had like the number one movie of the year, and Steven Seagal is like shooting movies in Lithuania where he all his fight scenes have to take place from a chair because he doesn't want to. <laughs> bother to stand up. up anymore <laughs> i gotta say though I, it might be i don't know man there's something about like does tom cruise actually use an apple box to kiss a chick oh it, yeah i think so yeah or or he's so famous <laughs> he makes think... them dig a hole that she stands in. <laughs> yeah maybe that that that's more sense to me just there's something to me that's just like embarrassing it'd be almost more embarrassing to me every time i stepped up on that apple box i would just be like oh i'm so short <laughs> Every single time. I mean, I am short, so I'm probably about the same size as Tom Cruise. But still, I think the I, difference you know is Tom Cruise steps up on the Apple Box, and his thought is, "I'm Tom Cruise." Oh yeah, yeah that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> he may short God. in stature, but he's a giant of the cinema. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think they just shoot him on a slope. They put the chick <laughs> on the lower part of the slope and he just sort of stands on the upper part of the slope and it just it just cheats it a little bit. I know? assume when no one's looking though, he, he just like floats around like Black Adam did in the first half of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. I think that's exactly true. I mean he is part of Xenu after all. Yeah. So um my question for you guys, that actually was an interesting thought to me because we talked about Steven Seagal never losing a fight. I believe Jason Statham is one of those guys as well, right? He usually doesn't even get hit. If, I mean, he kind of he takes a licking in the Crank movies, doesn't he? Yeah, the Crank movies. But that's also the reason he can take a licking in those is that's part of the plot. The more yeah. he gets beat up, the tougher he gets. Like he needs yeah. that adrenaline to stay alive, right? Um, I know The Rock supposedly is not allowed to lose um, I mean, those are all the backstories on Hobbs and Shaw was like, it's why that movie, had, it, it's sort of weird fight, perfect equilibrium where they all had to like punch each other the exact same number of times and crazy things like that. Yeah, that was the rumor is that like they had to like negotiate all of that somehow. Uh, That's hilarious. <laughs> it does yeah, sort of it, feel like that watching the movie that they had to be equally matched in every way. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a weird, it is weird to know how many action stars have the I can't lose fights mentality when like to us, it's such like it goes back like a hundred years. I feel like all the old film noir or they hard they call it film noir, you know, the hard boiled detective novelists. That's like mm-hmm. a big part of like Hammett and Raymond Chandler stuff. And you know, that's why Indiana Jones is so cool and James Bond is so cool, is they get the crap kicked out of them at points, so it's all the more triumphant when they win. So yeah. it's insane to think that your ego is such that you don't even understand classic like hero building and storytelling mm. you're like i, I mean, don't care if my movies like you want to build up your villain your villain should never lose a fight until the end of the movie mm. exactly and stallone has understood that too because rocky's an underdog yeah you know, yep. rocky loses to clubber lang at the beginning and then wins at the end he even loses to uh what was uh hulk's name yeah. in that thunder lips uh, yeah but, i mean it's also true just action heroes i mean raiders of the lost ark is really what kicked off like modern action movies right or like adventure now he qualifies as adventure somehow but it's like yeah. <laughs> in that movie like indy basically never wins 
any sequence. Like he's always putting up the most valiant attempt, but you know, he loses the idol. You know, like, I guess he does steal the arc off of the truck. He like wins that fight, but in general, he loses every single fight. And in the end, he only wins because he knows to keep his eyes shut. Um, I mean, the, the two most famous fights in the movie is one that he wins by cheating. Yep. He just shoots a guy who wants to have a sword fight with him. Uh, <laughs> and then the, you know, big bald Nazi guy who he just gets saved by a plane propeller. <laughs> But there's something satisfying, yeah, like about like the hero who really struggles and takes a lot of hits and just keeps getting up. Like that's like what yep. you admire about him is her, his perseverance and his bravery. Because like, what's braver than going to fight a battle you know you're gonna lose? You know, that's like the end of the Lord of the Rings too. Aragorn and everybody, they're like running off to meet their deaths just to possibly buy Frodo a little time. Um, Yes, yeah, the only Violent part Knight. Pat and I like in Lethal Weapon 4, which is otherwise a sequel <laughs> we don't love much of anything about. But at the final fight in that, when Murtaugh and Riggs are like walking away from Jet Li and they have the whole bit of like, you know, oh, you couldn't remember, like, well, how do you do the thing? How did you do that? How, movie how, how do you do the thing to the, to the gun? He, like, and it's like, oh, we're going to have to go back and ask them. But it's like they both know that Jet Li is just going to kick the crap the out, of them, out of them and they yeah. do it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the most realistic thing that I've ever seen in a Lethal Weapon. I gotta say, <laughs> <laughs> just these two guys going, "Oh fuck, this this dude's gonna beat the <laughs> shit out of us." Lethal Weapon Four had, had it also had that crazy uh, fight, freeway fight where they get in like the house that's like on a truck and are fighting around. There's <laughs> oh, not literally house. nothing. It's that just, was good. That was uh, such a. The fact that that movie, I think I timed it. I think it's it's either forty five seconds or fifty seconds. There's like a shot that's just the car on a bridge being shot from like it's B-roll from a helicopter because they clearly wrote a scene like during editing and got them to, you know, record the dialogue. And there's like a, essentially a minute long dialogue scene where you don't see in the car because <laughs> they were just trying to cobble the movie together in post. That seems uh, to be like I recently rewatched Maverick, which was also a Donner movie. And that had several sequences like that, too, that I didn't notice the first time around, which is like a shot of like a wagon going along while they have the dialogue explaining <laughs> the plot to like stitch this movie together. I mean, Donner fun, came though. up in OG television. And maybe, you know, that might just be how his brain works. You got to move yeah. fast. We shot the movie. All right. I know all my tricks from back in the day. Hey, don't give him a chance to think, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as people getting beat up and again, sticking sort of on the theme of like the script part being the great part of it, because obviously there's so many action auteurs who get all this credit for this than the other, but you guys sitting alone or in your case together alone uh, are the ones who are coming up with all of these gags and all of these setups and payoffs or coming up with a version of them. And then you tell the people to do it or show it to them. Hey, you want to do this? And they go, that costs too much. And then you have to kind of figure some other bullshit out. So I'm thinking for me, screenplay wise, why some of these movies are so great or one of the greatest ones of all time to me is like fucking predator screenplay rocks ass. It is so fucking hardcore. It is so simple. I strive to be as simplistic as that movie. It sets up a whole team of bad motherfuckers. The baddest dudes you've ever seen in a movie all clicked up together. These dudes would kill the Expendables in two minutes. I'm sorry. They would murder the fuck out of them. <laughs> they're younger. They're more spry. They're ready. And they're still seasoned experience. Jet Li would kill them. all of them by himself. <laughs> Jet Li would get shot with a fucking chain gun from a million miles <laughs> away before any Kung shit. Fu could come. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so I know you're joking, but there is a class of person who thinks that shit is true. And I'm just like, gun fu beats Kung Fu any fucking day. Now, anyway, what I'm saying is like, I love that movie because just what we were talking about earlier, Arnold Schwarzenegger allows himself to get smacked the fuck around by Bigfoot in that movie. <laughs> Kevin Peter Hall playing the, playing the Predator. He allows himself to get so fucked up and he's at such a disadvantage. He has to literally put together caveman weapons to defeat an alien who came down on a spaceship. You can't get more unbalanced than that. You can't get more unbeatable a villain than that. And that's all in the script. I love that about it. But I think that's one of the great things about Arnold and why he was such a great movie star and i suppose also the difference is is that you know arnold arnold knew he was <laughs> the biggest baddest dude in the world i don't think he had to work i don't think his ego ever got in the way of needing to convince the audience that he was the world's biggest baddest dude 
Um, which yeah, is why he, he didn't have the insecurity that may have defined a lot of that Stallone stuff of Stallone trying to convince everyone he's bigger than he was, etc. When like yeah. Seagal's like the more you learn about him, his whole like backstory in life was like a big lie. So I'm yep. sure that was part of his like the weird it, psychological actually- gumbo going on in his head. Going back to Predator, like, yeah, what does make that so brilliant is that we, like, introduce this whole team of the world's biggest badasses. They all have a bunch of hilarious macho bullshit in the opening minutes. So it's, like, really funny. These guys are the toughest dudes in the world. We see them take out the Contras or whoever they're even fighting at the beginning of the movie with ease. So it's, like, we've established these are the toughest, literally the toughest dudes in the whole world. And it's sort of pro wrestling logic, right? You set up these guys as ultimate badasses. The Predator takes them all out. So he's tougher than all the world's toughest dudes combined. Yeah, and now Arnold has to defeat the Predator with nothing but his wits and his caveman shit. And then he does it because it's like now it's been established as the ultimate challenge for your hero to overcome, which makes Arnold even tougher than the an alien who killed all the world's toughest dudes. You know, it's like it's like a, a math problem sometimes of yeah, creating a challenge to to put somebody over is a great threat. So then when your hero beats them, like that's what what really gets you going. I mean, action movies like like that's sort of there's the the John McClane, there's the unstoppable commando, another Arnold one, but that one's where commando. it's like no matter the challenge he faces, like he's completely <laughs> up to it. That falls into the the secret badass Casey Ryback style, except that the bad guys knew he was a badass when they messed with him. Yeah, I mean, just look at him. (laughs) (laughs) The stupidest, the stupidest bad guys. (laughs) But then there's also like, you know, the Matrix, where it's like Neo starts off as just some schmo. The agents are completely unbeatable. No one can even fight him. You have to run from them. And then, you know, your hero becomes such a badass that he's able to do what no one's ever done before. And there's something satisfying about that, too. Yeah. which is kind of what we did a little bit in Violent Night because, you yeah. know, Santa starts off as just kind of a schmo and he really, like, he wins his first couple of fights, but barely before he gets his mojo back and, you know, levels up mm-hmm. by the end of the movie and becomes that unstoppable commando type. Uh, well, I, I think you also earn that, too, with, with like, I, and just, again, we're going to be light on spoilers, but the thing about uh, the Christmas magic that's in the movie it's just in this particular instance, it's not that reliable. <laughs> so like a person who's used to getting by on a little Christmas magic and messing around now has to, you know, remember what it was like to be a, a mortal guy fighting multiple dudes and shit and has to connect with that. You know, I think that's super fresh. And I also think um, there is that you guys are part of this tribe. I think you are. I think there's two tribes in action screenwriting. There is or two styles rather of going towards the end of an action movie. Right. There is the hero fights his way up to a guy who can't fight and then they do some bullshit machinations make the make the hero's arm fall off or something to make the guy you know the end guy fightable or whatever or the end situation be whatever or you fight your way all the way up to the last guy and that guy takes off his fucking shirt (laughs) and he's ripped as fuck and he starts beating your hero's ass I like that you guys are more in the second tribe, especially in Violent Night, because I can't stand these movies like the fucking Fugitive, where he beats the fucking one-armed man, the guy who killed his wife, and then he moses into a (laughs) doctor's convention, and then he he fights a doctor. They have a doctor fight after he killed the (laughs) one-armed man. It's like, no. That sequence does have the the great bit, though, where the evil doctor smashes Joey Pants in the face with, like, the giant swinging girder. Like, the most painful-looking thing I've ever seen. That was hard as fuck. And the whole audience was just like, oh! (laughs) Yeah. Because you know how hard those things are. You know how many chiclets of yours would be on the ground if you got rocked in the face by that. So, yeah. But they'd be doing a face transplant on your fucking ass if you got hit with with a girder like that. You wouldn't just get knocked out. But anyway, just comment on, uh, from you guys' perspective, which one you like like better and uh, again like i said violent night one happens and i love that but like which i hate I mean, the other one it's like it one. sort of depends i think on the movie and the story because like mm-hmm. at the same time it always drove me nuts when what yeah wait which which mission impossible is it where he fights the bad guys like you know the doughy middle-aged guy mission impossible four this was a guy who clearly could not beat tom cruise in a fight but they're like they have to be able to fight each other at the end and i'm like i mean if this is the bad guy you wanted you gotta go the alan rickman carl route Mm -hmm. where he has like a super tough henchman 
Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's always been a problem for Batman too. It's like Batman fights past the army of henchmen, and now it's time for Batman to fight like the, the Riddler Joker. or the Joker or whatever. Like it's one thing if Batman has to fight Bane or KG Beast or Killer Croc, but it's like you know. Mm-hmm. The Riddler, he's just gonna kick him right in the face. Fights over in one second, unless you're like, we gotta have a big fight here. So I guess Batman's hurt enough that this can be a thing. I mean, that's to do what he they... ever fights the Riddler at least. But I guess yeah. really, I think it comes down to for me, James Bond. It doesn't bother me because J- the whole point of James Bond's character isn't that he's like the world's greatest fighter. Uh, but if you do mm-hmm. a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie and it's all about him throwing crazy kicks, that's where it would be really boring. If you'd be like, why did this final scene, he sits down across a table from the villain and they have like a conversation. That's not why I'm paying money to see a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> yeah. I want those scissor kicks. God yeah. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in time cop, he fights a bunch of guys, but then it does come down to him trying to outfox Ron, Ron Silver. Silver. And I'm yeah. just like, Oh yeah. Geez, Louise. To outfox two Ron Silvers. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> that's true. It but like be, that could be eight Ron Silvers and it still wouldn't be enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you guys got to watch Heat that. Vision and Jack. Yeah, because it turns out Ron Silver is bulletproof, man. Uh-oh. to the YouTube. <laughs> I'm on my way. Oh, yeah. I, I remember it back because uh, I used to be sort of a uh, – uh, I used to be a Dan Harmon stan a little bit. And I was just like, oh, he Vision Jack's going to take over the world. But then it was suppressed like the electric vehicle. <laughs> you know what I mean? You start building like these the stories. Up. Uh, <laughs> right. It's like uh, – or like that guy who made the engine that ran on water. Where is he yeah. at? Yup. Sleeping with the fishes. Show the was too funny for the network to arrive. <laughs> Dude, but I, I love anything where there's a personality in a car. There's a movie Chariot coming out, uh, written by uh, based on a comic by Brian uh, Brian Edward Hill. And yeah, like the world's greatest like female secret agent does a mission and dies inside this prototype supercar, and her consciousness bonds with it or something. And now she's like helping this guy do these Night Rider adventures in the present. And it's like it's already greenlit, okay. and it's just like she, it's just like God damn, I, that's in my wheelhouse. Just fucking insanity. And also, if it, it's about tone, I think that's a really great thing about you guys' movie because there, there is you guys are great, but there could have been a bad movie in there if, if certain oh, yes. things aren't handled correctly, <laughs> if there certain things aren't aren't whatever. So I think it's all. In, uh, uh, but that's the that's the scary thing about something that's execution dependent. You have to have good good partners and a lot of trust going around. And I'm glad that you guys uh, your trust was borne out. Everyone seemed to both get and agree with the tone of the movie. I mean, even then it can still go wrong. So everyone can have be on the same page in theory and have the best intentions and it can still go haywire. Action movies are supposed to be fun. There is like the whole other vein of action movies that are all about like how dark and gritty they can be. But it's like the same time, then they'll have like these plots that are so preposterous that it's like, can you play this dramatic? Like, it's so dumb. Like you really got to suspend your brain to like, take it to the level of seriousness they want you to. I mean, some, some people are into those. I'm more into the fun ones for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, they have, they all got their places. What I thought was interesting. And let me ask you guys this, you guys, you guys had a really fine line of making the comedy work while not making it overly cheesy. Cause if it had been too cheesy, it, it would have made the whole movie suck. Right. But you also the stakes were still high enough and you cared enough about the characters for it to be like taken seriously at the same time, which was necessary to enjoy the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you guys pull that off? Like what was like, how I, do you guys think about that stuff? Kind of to Pat's point, he was saying is that because our whole idea was that we always thought it would be funnier the more seriously we took it. But I also mm-hmm. kind of realize, as we've been saying that in press, that's sort of implying that we are saying take it seriously, like Pat was noting, like a serious, grim, no fun action movie. We just meant take it as seriously as Shane Black took. Because his movies are funny, but you still, you know, you, you don't really say Lethal Weapon is a comedy, even though it's hilarious and full of jokes. Yeah. Um To some extent, even calling it an action comedy, I think, is misleading, because I think usually when you say action comedy to other people, that makes them think more like 
rush hour or something that like that's a like game night even yeah you know? yeah game night's a great example um but just just that kind of 80s bleeding into the 90s style action like die hard that's like what steven e d'souza did on the movies jeb stewart wrote he adapted the book which is not funny and has yeah, the no book jokes. is extremely grim it's super oh grim. My god yeah Dude, uh, really really quickly i think the hero drops his fucking daughter at the yeah it's at, his at daughter some point instead there, of his drops wife her and, and she and dies she got, he doesn't drop her like on purpose like he doesn't no of course her, but, but like, you know yeah, he's yeah. trying to do this hero saver thing and he doesn't do it because he's yeah I, I think he's probably an old dude in that too isn't that isn't that yeah it's based on the detective so to the detectives yeah. yeah and like jeb stewart because like the, the story yeah. of the, the building and stuff is very similar, right? But, but the big difference is Jeb was like, let's make this about an estranged marriage and give it a happy ending instead of a father-daughter with a tragic ending. Yeah, and then McTiernan came on board and I think was like, this needs to be funnier. Because yeah, he'd done Predator and stuff. And again, a movie that's not a comedy, but it's also hilarious. Uh, but the big thing for be. this one really was, because it's like the family is all sort of cartoonish and they're sort of comedy characters. Because we yeah. love like mm-hmm. The Ref, another great Christmas movie that's just about fam- a family being super mean to each other. Ron, you just I had the biggest reaction. Yeah, I love that <laughs> fucking movie. It's extremely good, man. It's so funny and it's so like sweet at the same time. It's a great movie. Uh, but then like the key really, I think, and that's that was one thing just even in pitches. They're like, what's up with the bad guys? What makes them funny? We're like, nothing. They're the bad guys from the serious version of this. But ironically, they are very funny because of the fact like we pl- set them up as just fully the bad guys from a diehard movie. And then what becomes funny about them is their reactions as they're slowly realizing that this guy might be the real Santa, the most preposterous thing that some serious bad guys could ever have to consider. You know, it is the fun. It is one of the funniest parts of the movie. It's just them, just they have that slow creep of like, (laughs) fuck, we might be getting fucked up by actually (laughs) Santa. Santa? (laughs) And he knows when we were sleeping and when we were awake and shit, like this sucks. He may, we, we weren't good for goodness sake. And we're getting fucked up right now. It's it's it really adds a gravitas to their evil deeds, <laughs> like like them ending up here to get fucked up by Santa. It's because they were naughty. I love that shit. I, I really love that about it. Yeah, they've all sort of given up on clearly the idea of morality in general as they all became, you know, crazy murdering mercenary criminals. And like for the first time in years, they're having to confront the idea of like, oh, wait, good and bad are real things. We are bad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! We are the baddies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you can get caught up in the whirlwind, man. Um, as far as um, th- are there any other movies that are even more obscure that you may have drawn from to uh, write something like Violent Night in regards to like you know obviously the Die Hard engine, even a little bit of the ref. That's a great. That's a great pull, Pat. That's that's crazy. I didn't think of that at all. I mean, as far as stuff we were directly pulling from, I don't think so. I mean, I feel like another thing that we kind of always fail to bring up because it's such obviously a diehard homage, but it's like diehard itself was already part of the post first blood, like one man army knockoff movies. Mm. They just found a real fun, new clever way to like mix things up. But you know, our, our scene where Santa is uh, stitching up his own wound is obviously a direct mm-hmm. like first blood lift. But again, it's the kind of lift where in some ways I don't even feel like we're lifting specifically from First Blood because I doubt First Blood was the first time I saw that in a movie. Yeah, and it became such a genre trope of like tough guys who like know how to do their own combat medicine. Like in Ronin or like Shooter with Mark Wahlberg had a great scene like that. I mean, even Predator. The Predator pulls a Rambo and kills himself. (laughs) You know what I always loved? As tough as all these characters are, they're never afraid to scream. As long as it's a manly scream, they're like, they're they're always willing to do a manly scream. Those the nice guys. Another Christmas movie. but a big part of what made that movie so funny was just Ryan Gosling's like girlish screams. Like he decided to go fully the other way yeah. and just be the, the least tough guy who ever lived, which was a hilarious choice. I mean, I, I think they're, I think they them committing to that was great. Cause like one of the first things you see him do is like knock out a window, which every action hero does, but he cuts himself so bad. He has to go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, dude, nobody ever got injured like that. 
in an action movie before. I think, Even I think that Shane Black would. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I think Shane Black's taking the piss out of himself in that. I think there's some long kiss goodnight in there because of all the way that the action is happening and the hero like having to find themselves during this action crucible. And the only thing that's missing is, you know, obviously Santa's not saving his own kid, but he's saving the idea of kids around the world and shit like that. I mean, I love yeah. Long Kiss Goodnight, but it is funny because I haven't actually watched that movie in like 10 years. I've been meaning to rewatch it. Josh, you watched it again yeah. more recently. And, well, and that, that is, there's a scene in that we can't talk about. Uh, we can tell you off the air because mm-hmm. um, it would be kind of spoilery. Um, that is not actually referencing Long Kiss Goodnight, but Long Kiss Goodnight, a, a specific scene we did talk about um, in relation to a uh, uh, scene we have. Well, and it's, that, that's it's like, like as far as action movies too. Like that's pretty Christmassy. There's a lot of Christmas imagery. That's right? definitely mm-hmm. Shane Black's most overtly. And Christmas Gina like movie. wears like a Christmas hat at some because she's like the the Christmas queen or something. Well, she, the she's like she's, she's playing Mrs. Claus. She's playing yeah. Mrs. Claus in a parade. Bad guys like on spot her on TV. Yeah. On TV in the yeah. pageant, yes. And they start coming after her, but she still has no idea of who she is. And then I guess sometime right before the guy gets to her, <laughs> she remembers a little bit or whatever uh i i just love the the aspect of like we talked about colstad earlier Derek colstad another here uh besides you guys another screenwriting uh hero of mine it's just like the world building that you put into your hero is super serious because you can do the same well he was in black ops and then he decided to go be a farmer and there's this there's only so interesting you can make that you know what i mean but like uh, they went the extra mile and colstad kicks it up a whole other notch of like, there's a whole secret world you didn't know about. <laughs> yeah. I love the bit in nobody when he goes to like the tattoo shop to try and he's trying to track down the people who broke into his house. And the one old guy like spots his tattoo on his wrist mm-hmm. and like goes into the other room and you hear him like locking 10 billion <laughs> locks. <laughs> <laughs> what a good. Yeah. Uh, and that's really the first clue the audience gets, right? That there's more to Bob is right at that moment. Uh, like he's let you go like a full half hour into the movie with like no clues that Bob is actually the world's most badass dude. Well, it's a, it's a, and with, without spoilers, when Santa Claus has to take off his Santa coat for a second, you see it's serious <laughs> business now. Buddy. <laughs> like we've seen that uh, the movie with an audience a number of times now, and that always gets like an audible response, uh, which is great when Santa yes. takes off his jacket. And think, there's been like debates think, amongst the filmmakers of like, are they making that noise because they see the tattoos or just the fact that David's taking his shirt off and you're seeing his dad? I think bod? it's a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's for sure some both. people in the audience who are just big hubba hubba david harbour fans and are like yeah <laughs> but yeah to toot our own horn a little bit i do love the way we unveil that backstory just a teeny bit of it. like that the first the first hint you get is just seeing him shirtless and because it, it makes the audience be like what uh what's going on here you know it's like it raises yep. the question and then we don't fully answer the questions we well we kind it, of it does help that it helps us that the movie's already so ridiculous that I don't think the audience is necessarily, you know, because the, uh, the serious version of the normal action movie of this, you're waiting to find out why this guy that you think is like a grocery clerk knows Kung Fu. Like, you know, if they don't tell you at the beginning, you know, the explanation's coming. I think part of why we get the fun reaction for Violent Night is people have just accepted of like, oh, yeah, I guess Santa's big and tough. You know, you don't necessarily know that there's, any kind of well, further reveal. Yeah, people yeah. are not necessarily expect. expecting us to give his backstory. Yeah, yeah they, they don't expect you to even try to justify it. And that's one thing I think you said ridiculous earlier, and I'm not trying to take you for task, take you to task for your own words, but I think sometimes people will look at something and call it like ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous in a good way. I'd love to recon. I know you will all get together and recontextualize the word ridiculous, because I think <laughs> this is ridiculous on its face. But it's fucking amazing because of it. Because you're not trying to fucking put him in a jet and explain him going to pilot school or whatever to fly the fucking <laughs> reindeer and shit like that. Well, you know what I mean? You're, you're leaving that away, uh, to the side because it's boring. Look, everybody hates when I bring this up, but I'm going to do it anyways. It's why I liked Supernatural, the TV show. Um, because the concept was so ridiculous and everything was possible in it, that means you can do a lot. And not have to say much about it. 
because everything is possible, you can just hint at, oh, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, and the fun, the comedy comes from that as on top of that. And that was what's what's so fun. You got and and by the way, I want to say one of the most annoying things in an action movie is when you do get the little backstory and you should get a small backstory that just be like, here it is. He trained, bam, and then it's done, right? Then they just instead there's a seven minute scene or a ten minute scene of this guy's <laughs> training and backstory, and you don't fucking need it at all. And you're like, this is why did we waste our time with this? But you guys throwing these hints in there was perfect. And just like small things being, oh, this guy's a badass because he did this and this and this. Boom. Done. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the Santa backstory, that was one like even because we kind of had it as a separate movie idea years ago. Oh, um, nice. And then when we were kind of deciding to go out and pitch this diehard Santa thing and it was sort of like we were kind of debating amongst ourselves of like, should we even bring up this backstory to David Leach, like when we meet him for lunch here, we were like, well, we'll play it by ear. And so when we kind of pitched him that of like this, is, so here's where Santa came from. And then David was like, I love it. Like, his, and we were like, okay, it's, it's in the movie. His, his response <laughs> in that moment uh, made all the difference really. Yeah. It was great. Oh, well, That's I it. guess that I guess there's sex and then there's pitching something that crazy and somebody going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. This is, this is living. Um, speaking of which, uh, as far as um, are there any, again, uh, Christmassy action screenplays or just other action screenplays that you um, that have informed you guys voice? Because I think it's very strong and you guys um, ability to set up and pay off. I was talking to Pat about it um, uh, at, you know, after the screening. I was like, dude, you guys set up and paid off so much shit like like. Number one, I just maybe as a writer would like to ask, how do you guys do that? Do you write a whole draft trying to do some of that shit, but just sort of just trying to get through it and then go back with a fine tooth comb and be like, oh, well, this golf club could be the fulcrum that launches the logs at the end of this, blah, blah, blah. How, how do you actually structure that? How do you actually do that between you guys? I mean, yeah, I mean, most of it, I think, is planned from the get go. That's just what kind of how our brain works. If there's something we already know we want at the end, then we set it up. But you always go back and change things. And, and sometimes, yeah, you realize like, oh, wait, we could set this up here. You know, it's because it's like it's not like you write the whole script in order. I mean, maybe some people do it that way. We, we never have. have. <laughs> like we, you know, we we start with the scenes we know we want and then you kind of. You know, it's like making a, a puzzle. You do the borders and then you like fill it in as you go and you do the parts with like text, like on a, you know, that's easy to do on the puzzle and then the holes keep getting smaller. But yeah, our brains just work where we're always like looking for opportunities to set up and pay off. That's like fascinating. I, I It really is. That being your normal process to just sort of like, hey, it's almost like uh, in drawing, right? Some people will just draw the parts they like and then work out the hands later. And that's certainly what those shitty AI things are doing. <laughs> anyway, um, they'll work out the hands or they'll work out the gun or whatever later, but they'll do the parts that they know that they can conceive of and then they'll figure it out later. It's interesting yeah, I mean, that people can I've heard it that. referred to as the dessert first method. <laughs> right. But as far as other action screenplays to talk about as all-time greats, how about Speed? I was going to mention it. Yes. Die hard on a bus. Now that's yeah, a great right. screenplay, man. And My it's short knows. too. It's insane short. I mean, the first, maybe not the one that they ended up shooting, but the one that got it, got it sold. Oh, the script I've read it before. It's the script is short. That's what, yeah. But yeah, man, like that just keeps it moving. All, I mean, all killer, no filler, you know? That is interesting about like uh, setting too. Like all of these have great. You guys have a great setting of an of an old manse and and, and a property to roam around and do all this action on. Uh, basically, uh, Die Hard has. I mean, uh, Die Hard on a bus has a bus. <laughs> Speed has a bus. Um, Die Hard has a building. Is that like? I, I guess it's like Aristotle's shit of like time and unity and drama and shit. Like a, <laughs> a limited space, a limited time, and a limited number of motherfuckers, and that's how you get a story or whatever. But uh, it, I think that's why I kept going back to Cliffhanger, though, because like mountains, a lot of the mountain movies they made in the past are just like, I never got the feeling that I was on a mountain. It, sure, it's got to be expensive to actually get all your stuck crew and gear out <laughs> on a mountain. Yeah, somewhere. you got to be able to get your trucks up there, man. Like a moving <laughs> uh, movie shoot is a big deal. 
it's funny, like when we've been directed on 12 Deadly Days, or I mean, just when we were producing that show, too, there was just like the n- number of times we ran into the problem of like, and then we just want to move all the cameras down this way um, a block and a half. And they'd be like, that's too, that's, that's a company move. That's going to take us hours. And we're like, shit, you know, just yeah. like losing our daylight. Uh, well, and that's interesting that you guys, but that's why I think you guys are so good at writing action movies presently is because you, you have, you have production experience. So you like, even when you're writing, you're probably not, I know sometimes you still go over budget. We've talked about that, but like, I bet you do that way less than some people. Cause I'll fuck around and put a goddamn bullet train to the moon <laughs> <laughs> in the first act. Like it ain't no thing, but it's that that's the amateurism coming out. I was like, Oh, well, fuck. I mean, I guess we'll see, uh, I'm sure we we inevitably will have our big career ruining bomb that costs two hundred million dollars for no reason. But uh, and you know we don't write our movies purely budget in mind. In fact, that was something on the Sonic movies. Our producer Toby had to keep saying to us because we'd be like, I mean, can we do all this? And he's like, Guys, don't worry about that. That's my job. Right, write it. And we're like, in each of the Sonic movies, there always is like one preposterously expensive sequence that has to come out. But then we got a bunch of preposterously expensive sequences that make it all the way in. If anything, it was amazing how little got pulled out of Sonic 2. Oh, but yeah, this point, like, you know, we don't really think about budget other than like, so we still had stuff we had to pull out of Violent Night because it was too expensive. But knowing that it needed to be a lower budget movie in the studio sense of lower budget, you know, that was why it's all in a house and not running all over town and, you know, jumping on the subway and stuff. But I mean, having the production experience, I mean, it does help inform us when we're thinking about like, are we getting anything out of this? Like you have some idea of what's going to cost a lot and what's not. Mm. And like, just thinking about like, like this is going to cost a lot and it's not getting us really anything. Just cut it. Even on the Sonic movies of just like trying to be a little strategic. I mean, again, with Sonic, it's so funny because the budgets are so big and our special effects are so, so outrageous. You can do almost anything, but it's also sort of like, let's have, there like, is a line. Yeah. Let's five, six big giant things. <laughs> But then if there's something where it's like, oh, and we need 300 extras or like, I mean, one thing I noticed that I feel like uh, beginning screenwriters tend to do is just like having too many like one line characters, like having like extras talk. It's like, <laughs> never do that. <laughs> <laughs> there's no so character's name, like guy in jacket. You know, it's like that guy doesn't get a line. He's an extra. Get get this dude out of here. Yeah, you can give him like, lines jobs, that are like dude. ADR that's... coming from the crowd. That's like a whole different thing. It's cheaper. <laughs> That makes sense. Wow. Those, those, are the, those were the parts I got. So thanks. Appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry for killing your career, Ron. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I, I did that a while ago. No. Um, <laughs> but those, are, those are also my favorite kind of movies. So I also yeah. disagree fundamentally in like a creative sense. Yeah, that is true. correct budget wise. If you're making a $2 million movie, don't give do a that. one line to a person in the crowd. Figure out a way one of the people you're already paying to be there. But like thinking of movies like taking of Pelham one, two, three. Yeah, dude, that's a great, all those great new New York movies. What I love about them is just like, and you know, granted these were made a lot of in the seventies when SAG rules were different. So I don't think it did cost as much money to have the kind of movie where one of the funniest lines in the whole movie might be said by a character who only says that one goddamn line. He's like a hot dog vendor who just says something <laughs> sassy to the hero as they're walking by that now. Um, yeah. It's past. Like, usually you can only do that if you're making a bigger budget movie where they can throw around uh, they don't have to worry about, oh, this is going to cost $500 more to upgrade this extra to being like a day player. I mean, in the olden days, too, like bigger budget movies, like that's what you spend your money on was like locations, huge cast and tons of extras. And now what you spend your money on is CG and explosions. <laughs> yeah, stuff you <laughs> so don't it's get just to like it's harder to do that. the stuff with like tons of extras and a cast of, you know, the gigantic cast and stuff. I think also, though, in action cinema, the shit is only as good as I'd say first your situation or your or your fucking plot, really, because uh, a lot of people don't really key on characters that much. But then if you do have a great character 
it really helps people to get involved in your concept, obviously. So in this, you do have David Harbour doing, I think, the performance of his fucking life. <laughs> and I just want to talk uh, briefly about what you guys think of as heroism and maybe you mentioning some movie heroes that you were able to draw in besides John McClane, obviously, to make this great depiction of old St. Nick. Um, I mean, yeah, not to retread stuff we were already saying, but definitely that kind of guy who gets beat up just as much as he, you know, dishes out the beatings. I think that just kind of sets the tone for what he's going to be like. And then obviously for our Santa in particular, we love those kind of over the hill gruff, you know, like Bruce Willis first scene in the last boy scout where he's like so drunk in his car <laughs> passed out that, like kids put a squirrel dead squirrel on him to freak him out but then he doesn't even wake up and he's just got like the dead squirrel <laughs> not saying that's our favorite type of hero but like there is something fun about the arc of like an action hero who's just so like down in the dumps at the beginning i mean he is like uh that kind of hard-boiled detective I mean, we didn't have the scene in the movie, but like that was our original pitch was like seeing him like wake up and like, oh, and like cracking his shoulders, trying to get out of bed. Like he is just like this old, old dude. He's taking beatings. I mean, there's a lot of Philip Marlowe in him as well as Indiana Jones, like the classic just hero who gets his ass kicked. But yeah, we, I guess we were, we were drawing a bit even like outside of movies. I guess that's more literary, but the kind of like pulp novel you know hard-boiled detective types obviously our stand is not doing any like detective work uh, <laughs> but that was that was how we definitely saw him in the script and then obviously like harbor kind of came in and infused his own sort of energy into those initial scenes but that's why you know it begins in like a bar um yeah. i mean eddie just, valiant from <laughs> yeah uh, Roger, Roger Rabbit, Rabbit, which is also a comedy, yes, but was also perfect. drawing on the same thing where Eddie was this great hero. Now he's washed up and drunk, and then he kind of has to refine his joy in order to rise to the challenge by the end of the movie and do his big wacky slapstick routine is the key to saving saving the tunes from Judge Doom, you know? That's oh. one thing that's so satisfying about seeing somebody have to get their shit together. Especially, well, see, <laughs> yeah, and that—that's why, uh, as we dismount here, I would like to say our favorite. If under the gun, you guys got guns on you. I'll go first, <laughs> so you guys can think about your families before you die too. Uh, fucking, I my favorite action movie, maybe of all time, just happens to be Die Hard Three. And it is because of that. It's like, I saved my fucking wife from Nakatomi Towers. I saved her a fucking gin and a goddamn plane and saved everybody in the fucking airport, basically. And she still doesn't love me because I'm still an alcoholic piece of shit. And I'm smelling <laughs> my own farts probably too much for her. And she and I can't even keep my family together because I'm a hero, but I'm also a piece of shit in private. And I got to get my shit together. And I got to survive this adventure so I can make one phone call and get some redemption Get the fuck out of here. Slam dunk. It's over. That to me is the best. So like what what's something like that that we haven't talked about that you guys feel or maybe one of the ones we already talked about. I mean, I was going to say like Road Warrior that the Mad Max kind of classic man with no name. The, the the hero who's such an anti-hero that his first instinct when he learns that there's like people in trouble is like, "Well, fuck this shit. That's not my problem." Which again, we tried to infuse <laughs> In Violet Night. I don't think this is a spoiler. I think it's even maybe in some of the ads. But the idea that when Santa first learns that there's a family hostage, he's like, well, peace out. This is an <laughs> instinct until he sees that like a little kid's in trouble. And that's kind of his his soft spot, you know? Yeah, it's like they say that, you know, good drama comes from when or good people do bad things and bad people do good things. Or seeing good people do bad things is usually kind of a bummer. That's why we we like seeing bad people. <laughs> do good things, someone who you don't expect to be a hero, become a hero, like the Road Warrior, like all those movies I always sell at the beginning, Max is like, I'm an asshole, I don't give a shit about anybody, and the end of every movie is Max sacrificing himself so everyone else can get away to the promised land. Uh, mm -hmm. He's just Moses over and over and over again, that's his whole life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is really funny, given some of the real world things attached to yeah. Bill Gibson. <laughs> 
that is really, really funny. <laughs> and I, I guess I don't know. I was going to say Road Warrior and Josh stole it from me, but I'll go back to Lethal <laughs> Weapon. And Josh and I were just talking about how, like, you know, Lethal Weapon, like, what's Lethal Weapon about? It's like, oh, it's a, a white cop and a black cop bickering hilariously. But, like, that's what the franchise is about. The first movie, when you think about it, Lethal Weapon, like the title, that's referring only to Riggs. It's a movie mm-hmm. about Riggs and Murtaugh's our point of view character. Like mm-hmm. you, the yeah. audience, you're Murtaugh. What if your partner was this As crazy dude wish. with a death yeah. wish? And then, it's, mm-hmm. but then he becomes your best friend by the end. You know, it's like this, this should never work. And then it does because all, all the best movies are really about, you know, friendship conquering all. <laughs> oh, and, to, and just to give, to, get, friendship. to give away another mediocre pitch, there's a black guy. He's a cop. He's close to retirement. He has this lethal weapon partner and he realizes he's in an action movie and he could totally be the person that dies to give this guy motivation in the third <laughs> act. So he's like trying so hard to be safe and he's fucking up the case. I, 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 would, I would go see that too. Man, quit giving him away. <laughs> I mean, that McBain bit where McBain's partner is like, I'm retiring tomorrow. Bought a boat. The live forever. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. All right, Ron, you got a you got a favorite action movie to close us out? I mean, it's obviously Rapid Fire. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably being real because you love Brandon Lee so I, much, I just, and that's Apex Mountain for Brandon Lee to me. I mean, honestly, the crow. it's not my actual favorite, but I really do like Rapid Fire. It's a guy caught in a really bad situation because he sees someone get killed. He happens to have skills. He's hunted by guys who have guns who should be able to beat his ass. He doesn't really want to be in the situation, doesn't give a fuck about the situation. He would love to be gone and not dealing with any of it. And then at the end, he, uh, you know, kills everybody. So... (laughs) (laughs) Gotta give a shout-out to Showdown in Little Tokyo, too. Like, obviously, we love, like, stupid action one-liners. Yeah, man, that movie has some of the most ridiculous ones. Let's see. Let's see. Fish (laughs) off this naked chick. (laughs) Oh, also, uh, that's the biggest dick I've ever seen on a man. (laughs) There's no subtext in that movie. They just say it all right out loud. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, uh, one of the things we like to say out loud is the praises of Pat Casey and Josh Miller. Screenwriters extraordinaire. We're really happy to have had you on the show. Please leave us with your super dope um, plugs. You guys are stars now. You're verified on Twitter. <laughs> People are going to come after you and want to talk to you about stuff and want to be down with you, so let them do it. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Pat underscore Casey, the letters Casey. Um, and I'm Instagram is Pat Casey Superstar. And now I'm on a shitload of these other ones too, but I still mostly only using Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say people should check out my podcast. Best movies never made. Uh, we're on a hiatus at the moment while my co-host is finishing up a new documentary called shark exploitation. Um, you can also find me personally on Instagram at uh, Josh underscore S underscore Miller. And I, wait, I said Instagram, right? Yeah. Cause yeah. I just joined Twitter just in time for the insanity. <laughs> uh, you can find me there, Josh Miller Light, like the beer. Rock and roll, guys. Thank you so much, dude. You guys fucking kick ass. And Excelsior, fun. like I texted you guys. You fucking guys. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Great to see you guys. Bye. Bye. Talk to you later. Oh, man, Ron, that was a great interview uh, slash strolled out action movie and Christmas movie memory lane with two great screenwriters. I mean, I'm, I'm fucking jazzed about it. Uh, me too. It was pretty awesome. Uh, we even forgot to mention one home alone. Dude. Alone. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There is some home alone stuff in violent night, but, uh, again, they'll have to go see the movie in the fucking movie theater. Let me say guys, go see this movie. I'm not, they don't sponsor us. They're not giving us money, but I'm telling you, this movie is so funny and so fun. It is well worth your time. People are always complaining. Oh, we're not getting these cool movies. We're not getting these cool movies. You want to get cool movies? Go to the movies. Yes. That's how yes. you get them. Yes. So get out there, watch Violent Night. It really is worth your time. Um, and talk about love. Uh, we got another review. Oh, shit, uh, man. Good to read right that now. motherfucker. All right. We got someone from Xander Z. And then he says at the top, there's nothing to debate. This podcast is great. I love that. We love that mm-hmm. rhyme. <laughs> uh, if you're new here, the gist is go listen to this pod. Ed, Ron, and Bill never fail to provide insightful conversations about a variety of topics ranging from pop culture to real-life lessons. 
Each episode always has a couple of laughs, and the banter between the hosts and guests can be very funny. Each episode is unique, and I truly believe after a couple of episodes, this podcast will hook you. Also, like many others, I highly recommend investing in their Patreon. It has a wealth of episodes that will keep you busy for hours. It was the very first Patreon I ever subscribed to, and I don't regret it. Much love to the greatest pod crew. Keep up the good work, fellas. And you, reader of this review, go check out this pod. Wow. Thank you, I mean, that right there. I mean, we we always talk about uh, patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod as a way to as the way to financially support us. But to have so many of the reviews mention it is really dope because, you know, there are some patrons that that frankly suck ass and they're afterthoughts and stuff. I really feel like we put a lot of artistic effort. I mean, I'm, as I'm physically doing this shit a lot, I, I'm thinking about how much artistic effort I'm putting into them and the fact that people appreciate them this much to mention them even on reviews that go on the free feed uh it's it's everything we could have asked for patreon patreon.com slash the greatest pod as uh, xander mentioned in his review uh you get some extra podcasts some art all that good stuff and the thing uh, the other thing i'll toot our horns on is we have years of stuff on there I'm talking about you can sign up. You think you're going to sign up for a month. You might leave that motherfucker going for a few months because you haven't gotten through all of the stuff we have on there. And maybe you'll see the fact that there's a lot of value in it and just keep supporting us. That's kind of how how we get you. We just give you so much stuff that uh, you want to stay. Definitely get on there. And you know what, Ed? It seems appropriate. Why don't you uh why don't you why don't you take us out for this episode? Well, I think the only way to take somebody out is with a bullet to the brain. <laughs> <laughs> double tap. <laughs> we gotta double tap this episode, brother. We gotta shoot the trees because the tr- uh, the fucking uh, predators in them. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening to and supporting the greatest pod.